welcome to Synapse's Brain Bank podcast, a place for people and families impacted by brain injury to share their stories and connect with specialists from the field. Join our host, Dr. Zara Whedon, as we hear from everyday Australians and tap into advice and resources to help you on your brain injury path. Hi, I'm Zara Whedon. Welcome to the podcast. Today I'm talking with Sandy Dennison, the nurse unit manager of a rehab service in Perth, Western Australia. But I'll hand it over to you, Sandy, to tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, so I've worked with acquired brain injuries for 34 years. I've worked on the floor and worked my way up and now I'm the nurse unit manager. I believe that every person that has a head injury should come through rehab. We don't have sufficient beds, of course, so that doesn't happen. But my fear is the ones that have a mild injury and they get discharged home without any services or limited services or they're referred to a service where if you don't engage with them, they'll stop giving you a call. They're the ones that will miss out. And I, I think, you know, a few years down the track, when things start falling apart for them, I think that's when people recognise that maybe they did have some significant injury that wasn't actually identified at the time. So that's why I think people should be reviewed uh, to just rule out those sorts of things. That sounds a good thought. Well, they always classify a brain injury as like an unseen disability. So it's a bit like having a mental health issue. People can't see that you're injured, so yeah. they they just think that you're not participating because you don't want to and those sorts of things. But some of these people, they can't participate because part of their injury actually makes them less able to participate and less able to understand why they need to participate. And those are the ones that need more help. So I don't know what your experience was, Zara, but I'm sure you went through a rehab service of some description. I did. I had a tree fall on me. It was a pretty big tree. (laughs) Yeah, um, (laughs) Yeah, they usually win. Yeah, the tree did win. And I did go straight to the Royal Brisbane Hospital, which is one of the two major hospitals in Brisbane. Yep. Unfortunately for the doctors in there, I've worked there before and a few of them knew who I was. But, uh, yeah, so in intensive care and then under neurology and then I went to a normal rehabilitation but then straight through to brain injury rehab unit in Brisbane at PA. Yep. And I found that really, really useful. I think they're aware of what what is helpful for you. Yeah. And uh, I would say I wasn't completely better at the end of that but a lot lot better than I was at the beginning. We have a um, DVD that we play when people arrive just welcoming them to the ward and, and going through what, you know, rehab means. And, and to us, it means to be normal. So we expect our patients to be wearing their day clothes during the day uh, and to get changed in pyjamas at night and to, you know, have their meals sitting out of bed because you don't generally eat your meals in bed at home, those sorts of things. So I think that makes it a little bit more real for them so that they get up in the morning and get dressed as if they were going to work. And I always say to uh, some of the patients that are struggling, just consider this your job. So 
at the moment, this is your job. You have to do this Monday to Friday. You can have the weekends off like everybody else, but you're here to do your rehabilitation, so you need to be up and ready to go in the morning, same as you would if you were going to work. Sandy, what are the types of patients you see in the acquired brain injury rehab? Right, so we have quite a variety of patients. So we have ones that maybe have got a hypoxic brain injury. So that may be that they've had a heart attack out in the community and people have resuscitated them, but they've been without oxygen for a little while Mm. to their brain. They'll come in and be under the cardiac people and the the, um, heart people will think, oh, these people are a little bit unusual and they'll do some cognitive assessments and they may come to us for some cognitive rehabilitation. So just looking at their thinking processes and how they plan things and those sorts of things. So generally, physically, they're okay, those people. They can walk and, and they don't have any weaknesses of their limbs, but they may have some high-level balance issues. Then we get the people that have been in like road trauma. So, you know, they may come in, they've not only just got a head injury, but they may actually have um, broken bones as well. So then they may, their arms might be broken, their legs might be broken, their spine might be broken. You know, they may have to wear braces and things. And they may also be limited in what they're allowed to do with their limbs. So they might not be able to put any weight through. So, Sometimes we'll get people admitted that are non-weight bearing on all four limbs. So basically they're not allowed to push up with their arms, they're not allowed to pull with their arms, they're not allowed to stand, those sorts of things. So we have those and then we also have people that have got have had a bleed. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we'll take people, ultimately they're like a stroke but for some reason their injuries are a little bit worse and so they'll come to us. Quite often they may have a tracheostomy tube in place, may have a nasogastric tube in place, might have a peg in place, you know, those sorts of things to to assist them and we'll progress them through all that process. We also have people that have had tumours, so people that might have had surgery to um, have tumours removed and I, I know that I've got a very warped sense of, Uh, tumours and how many there are in the community and how badly they affect people because we only ever see the worst ones, of course, the ones that are affected. So I know um, my father actually had a brain tumour and he had surgery and, of course, I thought, oh, woe is me, he's going to have all of these complications. But he actually came out with no issues at all. So sometimes I think our take on things is slightly different. Yeah. So they're the kind of patients that, so it could be anything, basically. So any insult to the brain. So it could be that they've been a victim of abuse. Mm -hmm. So they may have been hit over the head with something. It may be that there was some flying object that hit them in the head. Or we've had people that have been in an explosion and, and that caused them to have a brain injury. So many different reasons for it. But most of the patients that we have, will require the need to have two therapy types see them. So they'll need to, you know, have be needing like physio and OT or mm-hmm. OT and speech or physio and speech. or So yeah. it, it's the two. If they only need one type of therapy, so if they only need physio, they're not going to come to our tertiary setting. They'll go to one of the other settings and have their 
uh, rehab in a more general rehab setting. Yeah. We've talked about how important it is to stay engaged with the rehabilitation. And Sandy, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that's probably one of the biggest issues. And I think one of the things is that it's really hard work. And so if people aren't used to hard work, they find it really difficult. Some people are just amazing and they engage and they work really hard the entire way through. So what we try and do is make it as easy as possible for people. So we'll set up a daily routine so that they don't have to remember the routine and they can concentrate on doing their therapies. But we also try to make their therapies more home-based. So we set goals and it will be like, you know, you want to go home and you want to be able to be the home keeper you want to you know prepare meals and stuff so we've actually got a kitchen that we use and patients go they make their own breakfast they go and cook their own lunch it feels more real to them rather than they go and do a cooking session in the middle of the day for no particular meal but this is much more meaningful because they make their lunch and then they sit down and eat it it's at lunchtime so you know it all makes sense so we just try and make the tasks that they're doing and the therapy that we're asking them to do meaningful so that, you know, it's not just, oh, you go down to therapy and you do all of these worksheets. We send them out into the hospital and, you know, they'll have a shopping list and they'll have to go to all the different shops and find the price of certain things, which is what you would do in your normal day if you're going shopping and stuff. So we, we just try and make it as normal as possible. But what you have to do is just try and, and keep them goal orientated. So if you've got a goal to achieve and you try and make everything towards that goal, and then it's much more important to the person. But we have to acknowledge that it's really hard work and sometimes they just need a day off. And so if it's just a day off, that's fine. You know, everyone's entitled to that. But we need to keep them engaged on a regular basis. So that's what we try and do. So it, it's hard, Bob. It's hard for the staff. It's, it's also hard for the relatives to try and keep that momentum going. So when you get home and you, they've got to attend outpatient stuff, it, it's hard to keep that going. But, you know, you just have to because... These people need as much opportunity as possible to to be able to improve and to go back to what they wanted to do with their life before as much as possible. Sandy, I remember back a long time ago for me, the first things I had, I think I, I made a list of things to do and it was useful yep. for me because it got me used to, you wake up, this is yep. your list of what you'll do and they weren't hard things and you'd think I would have remembered no. them without a list. But no. at that point, I had a list and when I did it, I ticked it so I knew I'd done it. Yep. Yep. And it was simple things. It wasn't hard things. Yep. No, and, no. And uh, cooking felt yes. like a task. I enjoyed yes. doing it, but it was harder harder to get used to doing that. And what do you do first? Yeah, because you've got to concentrate on more things, so it makes it hard. So that's why, you know, like a timetable is really good. So that would be your checklist. I've yeah. done that. I'll tick that off. I've, I've gotten up. I've had my shower. Tick. Yeah. I've got my clothes on. Tick. <laughs> 
I've had my breakfast, tick. Yes. I've taken my medication, tick. Yes, you know, that was and, on the list too. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and that makes it easy for everybody to follow those so we're all on the same page because if, if my idea of what you're going to do with your day is different to what you are doing with your day, then we can get into a bit of argy-bargy, you know. So <laughs> if we have a timetable and we know that these things need to be done and this is the order that we would prefer to do them in, then, you know, it's great for everybody because, um, you know, sometimes I have nurses that aren't familiar with my patients and aren't familiar with the ward. But if I've got something like that up in their room, then it means they can go in and make sure they've done everything that they're supposed to do as well because you both can see it. So it's not just you that sees it and ticks it off, the person that's caring for you and assisting you to get it done can see it as well. So, yeah, and that's where your goals would be included as well. So, you know, it may be that, you know, today you make toast for breakfast, but (laughs) the aim is by the end of the week you're going to be putting eggs on your toast. Yeah. So you can have that in your chart as well. They're great ideas, charts. And they're great because trying to remember stuff is probably one of the hardest things for people. But it's that short-term memory and um, laying down the memory from one day to the next and what did I do yesterday. So, you know, like charts and even notebooks, like where you write in what you did, like you went to speech and you were able to do this task today which you hadn't done before and and things like that. That's good because it... reminds you that you're moving forward but it also reminds you what you've been doing so that when you're having that chat with your relatives when they come and visit you can say oh I did this today and you know you've got that it's written down for you so that you don't have to remember every single thing you've done. Yeah I think having the nurses and other people around you knowing what you're doing and on the same page yeah that would help. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because I think that's one of the most important. Everyone has to be on the same page because I find sometimes, you know, when people first come, we're, we're not on the same page. We're not even in the same book yet, yeah. you know. <laughs> so we've got to work out where we're going and what we're doing. And so it takes a little while to get that though. So, you know, people think, oh, they come to rehab and we start it straight away and it's full on, you know, but we have to get a feel for the person. We need to know, you know, what they're like, what they want out of their life, what they want to achieve and what they're capable of doing at the moment. And sometimes that can take a week to to work that out. So we don't have, you know, magic pills where we can just, you know, work it all out. It's hit and miss. And, you know, in my entire time, I don't think I've ever had two people that have been exactly the same. Everybody is different. Everyone's unique. Their brains work differently. Some people, you know, they'll come in and people say, oh, what happens if you've had a subdural hematoma? You know, what's going to happen? But I don't know. We don't actually rely a lot on your diagnosis. We go for how you're presenting, what you're showing us and what you're capable of doing. And then we work on those things that you you need work on. So it doesn't matter what your diagnosis is, how you got there. It's actually what, what we find when we see you. So, yeah, it's not as cut and dried as, oh, I've broken my arm. I need to rest it for six weeks and then it'll be fine. It's not the same. It's just totally different. And I think that's the hardest thing for patients and Mm. for their relatives to understand is that we don't have that crystal ball. We can't give you answers because everyone is unique. Yeah, it's good for people to hear that 
and know about yeah. that. And yeah. also, Sandy, what are your thoughts of when people have finished improving? When does that happen? Do you think there's a set time? I think or? when they when they take their last breath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I think people – so, okay, the books say you have maximal improvement for six months and up to 12 months and all of this, and it depends on what kind of injury you've had and all of that sort of stuff. But I think it, it depends on what kind of person you are, whether you had the get-up-and-go before or whether your get-up-and-go's gone. Mm. You know, I've seen people that have done nothing for 12 months. So I remember looking after a fellow and I remember nursing him. He was on the floor on a mattress because uh, he wasn't safe in a bed. This was in the old days, of course. And he actually did not respond for 12 months. But he walks now. So And he's constantly improving. So I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. I, I think you can plateau a bit and the improvement might be a bit slower but I think there's always that potential to improve and you, you can learn new skills and your your brain will learn different pathways to take for you to be able to accomplish things. So I don't think you're ever done. Yeah, that's a yeah. good thing, I think, for people to know and their carers. So I always say that to people. I say it's never done. You know, some people will tell you, you know, all of this improvement and like they say at five years that's it. But yeah. I, I don't believe that. I think, you know, people will improve as long as they keep trying, basically. It's no different than learning something, you know, and people go back to school at 60, you know, so, and learn new things. So why can't I learn new things if I've got a brain injury? It's no different. Yeah, that sounds yeah. good. Sandy, you've been wonderful to speak to and you'll be wonderful for everyone to hear. Is there any... Other tips you could share with us? A couple of things. One is never give up. Mm-hmm. Two, be pushy. Be pushy with your medical staff. Be pushy with your therapy staff. And be pushy with NDIS or whatever provider you've got so that you can get the services that you require. And don't give up. Don't ever give up. You may have to, if you're a relative, you might have to push the person to attend their therapies and you know, those sorts of things. But I think if there's any therapy staff that might listen to this, I think they have to also acknowledge that people with brain injuries are unique and they don't behave as other clients of theirs may behave. So they may be reluctant and they may appear like they're aggressive or anti the therapy, but that's just their brain injury. And so you have to be patient Everyone needs to be patient. So the patient needs to be patient and all of the people surrounding them needs to be patient to wait for people to achieve what they need to achieve. It may take a little bit longer for things to get processed through their brain, but it will get there eventually and just never give up. Uh, I also want to share with you that I've been on the receiving end of services and looking after someone with a brain injury or a problem with their brain. So my husband was diagnosed with glioblastoma multiforma, which is a primary brain tumour. Mm. He was diagnosed with that in 2014 and passed away in 2015. So and I cared for him at home 
throughout that time. So I know what it's like to live with somebody that requires constant attention, that has memory problems, that has anger issues and needs assistance doing their daily cares. So I understand when people want to take people home that are, are quite disabled. I understand what that looks like in the home situation. So yeah, it's just yeah one of my experiences. Thank you for sharing that, Sandy, and for all the great advice. No worries. Well, that's us for this episode. Thank you to my guest. Thank you. And to you, our listeners. Until next time, I'm Zara Whedon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Brain Bank podcast. Brought to you by Synapse, Australia's peak body for brain injury. Make sure you visit our website, synapse.org.au where you'll find useful resources and tools to connect you to our brain injury community. And while you're there, please complete the podcast survey. We want to know what you've enjoyed, what's worked for you, and what you think we should cover in the next series. At Synapse, we're creating change for people from all walks of life who have been impacted by brain injury. Remember to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.